rifle upon my shoulder and a rucksack on my back. Bullets, shells, and shrapnel, and a hellhound on my track. When I made it to my home place, I found triumph of the will. Shining city stood a fortress on a hill. Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. For those new to the show, Danny and I are two progressive veterans who take the military and veteran stories of the day and add some much-needed context. We're really excited to share our discussion with author Ben Fountain and discussing his new book, Beautiful Country, Burn Again, which focuses on Ben's journey working for The Guardian following uh, presidential candidates for the 2016 election. We also dedicate some time to his wonderful piece of work, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which tells the, st the story of a soldier, an Iraq War veteran, with his squad at a Dallas Cowboys halftime show. It's an amazing piece of fiction, and one that feels very much like it's written by a veteran, which is odd because Ben didn't serve in the military. We discuss that and a whole lot more in the episode. First, here's a bit of background on Ben. Ben was born in Chapel Hill and grew up in the tobacco country of East North Carolina. A former practicing attorney, he is the author of Brief Encounters with Che Guevara, which won the Penn Hemingway Award and the Barnes & Noble Discover Award for Fiction, and the novel Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award and a finalist for the National Book Award. Billy Lynn was adapted into a feature film directed by three-time Oscar winner Ang Lee, and his work has been translated into over 20 languages. His series of essays published in The Guardian on the 2016 U.S. presidential election, which became Beautiful Country Burn Again, was subsequently nominated by the editors of The Guardian for the Pulitzer Prize in Commentary. He lives in Dallas, Texas, with his wife of 32 years, Sharon Fountain. All right, let's get to it. Ben Fountain, welcome to uh, Fortress on a Hill. We're really, uh, really glad to have you here with us. Thanks, guys. I am delighted to be here. Reading through, I, I, I saw that uh, interview you did with B Bill Moyers, and you were talking about um, growing up in North Carolina and being among a family of politicians. And I'm wondering... How how did that affect your view of the military as a young man? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, I don't come from a distinctly military family. My grandfather was in the Navy in World War One. His father was a young Confederate soldier. Um, but generally, we do not go to war unless unless we're drafted. Um. But, you know, I mean, the South in general is politically conservative. And um, and even those, you know, on the progressive or lefty side of politics tend to be very supportive of the military. And certainly my family was. You know, the great thing about your um, award-winning book, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, and we're going to talk about your most recent work uh, more later, but... You know, it was a really powerful book for me and one of really only two Iraq war novels that spoke to me was uh, your book and also The Yellow Birds by Kevin Powers. And, and for the most part, those are the only two that really felt authentic, which is really interesting because um, you didn't yourself serve. You weren't yourself a veteran. Uh, and yet you captured the experience so brilliantly. My question is, why did you choose to write a book about the war in Iraq when you did? What was it about that moment in time 
that made you feel like this was a topic that you needed to tackle? By the time I had the idea for the book, 2004, it was clear that these wars had been undertaken under false pretenses. I mean, anybody who cared to look, for anyone who cared to look, that would have been, you know, brutally obvious. And yet the country reelected the administration that had taken us to war under those blatantly false pretenses. And um, so there was that, that crystallizing moment of Bush's reelection, um, or some would say election, given that he came into office under a cloud. And just looking at the militarism um, of the culture, the triumphalism, um, and especially the way soldiers were being used as props to sell not just political agendas, but, you know, all kinds of brands. I mean, NFL brand, I mean, whatever brand you want to name, I mean, you just trot out the tagline, we support the troops. And, um, and it's like that, that shows that you are a worthwhile person or company um, that should be supported. So I, don't, I felt that the culture had been corrupted by these wars. And, um, and I felt bewildered and frustrated and angry. And, um, and it wasn't so much me choosing to write about the war. It was on some level, it was a necessity if I was ever going to have any peace in myself to, um, you know, go into the reasons, you know, just what the human impact of the war was and is for the people who are fighting it and their families. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. I've been so affected, not only by my service in the wars, but also just by being an American citizen in the time of perpetual war. And I understand your point about, you know, feeling drawn to the topic just because you live in America and, and are an observer of all this. That's that's re that's really powerful. It makes a lot of sense to me. So there was a there was a quote that you included in your book from James Baldwin about sentimentality being everyone's favorite protest novel. And often, I feel like what Danny and I are fighting in terms of providing clarity in a sea of propaganda is the sentimental nature that many ascribe to the military. For veterans, it was the most exciting time of their life. Um, also, probably the greatest hardship, the most frightening time of their life they ever faced. But whether they enjoyed it or they hated it, they always played it close to the chest. And then you have second-tier support from family and citizen patriots who will argue with you tooth and nail about the military, but they don't have the slightest idea what the military really looks like today or who it hurts in the process. How can we better flush out that sentimental nature that some people ascribe to the military and, and show that cold bite of truth? And show what? Show that cold bite of truth. I'm sorry, Henry, you're breaking up a little bit. Um, Hello? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay, okay. Um, how much of that were you able to hear? Uh, just repeat the last, the last part of the question. Okay. How, how do we better flush out the sentimental nature that some people ascribe to the military and show that, that cold bite of reality that America needs? Yeah, Baldwin was, um, the passage I quote uh, was from an essay Baldwin wrote on Uncle Tom's Cabin. And, um, and, yeah, Baldwin is talking about, you know, the nature of sentimentality as opposed to genuine, authentic emotion that comes from lived experience, whereas sentimentality, um, it accords with, you know, a narrative, a certain kind of narrative that's, ultimately meant to give comfort um, to the teller and the hearer of the narrative to fit within, you know, comfortable notions of reality, which actually may have nothing to do with reality. Um, I think, um, I think it's clear that uh, the vast majority of Americans really have no idea what's involved in being in the military and in being in combat. And that's a really dangerous situation for a country that is militarized as ours to be in. 
I think, for a critical mass of Americans to have any kind of real appreciation for war and what military life is like, I think you have to have a, a critical mass of Americans with skin in the game. And that means, you know, certain numbers of Americans and their families have to be closely involved in some way with the military. And, um, you know, in the Vietnam, during the Vietnam era, there was a draft that made the war real. Um, you know, I can remember my oldest sister's friends, they were all of draft age. I had cousins of draft age. And because, you know, so many people around us and in our families um, might well have to go go to that war, people paid attention. And I think that was one reason for the tremendous protests against the war. It was real in people's lives. They took a good hard look at it and decided this is not a just this is not a just war. This is not a war worth fighting. Whereas in our current era, um, the vast majority of the American public gets a pass. Um, and so war and, and the military is not their lived experience, but it's a narrative that's heavily mediated by mainstream culture. That's that's such a great point. The distance between American, the average American and the military experience is one of the themes that comes through in your book and, and comes through so, so well. And I think so importantly in this moment, because like you said, without conscription, the American people get a pass. I mean, not only are we not drafting unwilling Americans, but we're we're also not we're not even raising taxes. We're putting the entire thing on the credit card, so it doesn't touch Americans, at least not now, which is really interesting. But again, it's it's so fascinating to me that you put your finger on the problem so accurately without yourself having been a veteran. And, and another thing I wanted to ask you about was I think one of the most powerful parts of Billy Lynn is the dialogue and the language and the banter that you describe between the soldiers and among the soldiers. And what I wanted to ask is, how did you get the authenticity of that? Did you interview soldiers? Did you, did you spend some time around them? Because there was just something so authentic about the dialogue. Um, I mean, I talked to a lot of soldiers and veterans and families of soldiers. But, um, I mean, you know, I did a certain amount of research, but also... You know, when you do this kind of work and you undertake to write a novel, all these things from your past start surfacing. And um, I realized that I've known veterans of American wars going back to World War One, and um, and growing up in eastern North Carolina, I mean, military people are, you know, they're all over the place. Um, there's lots of military bases in eastern North Carolina. So I don't know. It's just... Even though my family is not a military family, the military was ever present in in my formative years. Um, you know, I mean, I did my research. I talked to people. I read everything I could get my hands on. I watched documentaries. Um, but ultimately, I mean, you do your research. You immerse yourself in it. And then in a way, you have to forget it and, um, and try to bring to the story all the contingency and uncertainty of the life as opposed, as opposed to a, a predetermined narrative. Um, I mean, and also I thought back to um, situations where I've been Im- involved in groups of, you know, boys and adolescents and young men and men over the course of my life. And um, it's just human nature that, that when a group of people goes through something intense and they're thrown together, um, it forms a bond. And I think the more intense the experience, the closer the bond. And uh, and along with that is the human genius for humor. I mean, you get a group of guys together, um, and within 30 minutes, the inside jokes are flying, and, and you know, the dissing and the insults, you know, in fun are flying, and um, so I just try to tap into, you know, those experiences I've had in the past and, and project it to this small group of soldiers. Well, you nailed it, I have to say, sir. 
Thank you. I'd like to, uh, in mentioning about being around, you know, groups in complicated situations, I'd like to hear about um, some about your time in Haiti and how that altered your outlook and how it fits into your writing. Um, I started going to Haiti in 1991. I had been writing for a year or two by then. And, uh, you know, I knew there was this um, huge reality out there that I, I only had the barest sense of. That's the reality of people who live on a dollar or two a day. And it's two or three billion people on the planet. And um, my experience is that of a middle-aged white guy um, with all the privileges and advantages of um, my cohort. And I don't know, I just felt like if I was going to be a worthwhile writer, much less human being, I needed to go and try to engage that other reality in as genuinely as I could. Um, and so... And Haiti had always intrigued me, so I started going. I had a vague idea for a novel, and um, I didn't know anybody there. I'd never been out of the country. Uh, I just showed up one day and um, and started meeting people and going around and hanging out and trying to learn the country. Um, over the years, it gave me an entirely new and hopefully useful perspective on the way power works, the way politics work, the way economics work in the world, um, who gains, who loses, who profits, who pays the price. Uh, and Haiti has been an ongoing revelation for me in my life. And def definitely seeing the politics of human suffering in whatever form they happen to take at that time. Um, but yeah, I, I applaud you for doing that for it, it, it informs so much about being an American when you see people having to live in the non-American way and especially that different, you know, that far down the technological and economic path. I remember, um, uh, early on, I, I made a very good friend named Pierre and, um, we were downtown Port-au-Prince one day and we were at a bookstore because I'm a book nerd. You know, I've got to go to the bookstore wherever, you know, wherever I am. And there was a book on Fidel Castro. It had Castro's face on the cover. And Pierre pointed to the book and said, that's a good guy. And, you know, as an American, I've been conditioned to think, well, Fidel is just evil incarnate. But Pierre and I talked and I thought, and I came to realize that from Pierre's point of view, actually, Cuba has done pretty well. I mean, Papa Doc Duvalier in Haiti and Fidel Castro in Cuba took power around the same time. And Haiti aligned itself with the United States, and Cuba obviously ended up you know, going toward the Soviet bloc. But you look at the different outcomes in the two countries right down to this day, right? Cuba is a hard place to live in, and there is, I think there still is a great deal of political oppression, but everyone knows how to read and write. Everyone has access to decent health care, and, uh, and it, it, it really is you know, a pretty egalitarian society. You look at Haiti, up until the last few years, illiteracy was something like 60 to 80 percent. Wow. Um, there's no such thing as as any organized form of health care, um, uh, very few people have access to clean drinking water um, or, you know, sewage system, you know, modern plumbing. Um, and uh, malnutrition is a real problem. And so you look at the two paths those countries took, two very different paths, and you start to see, well, okay, you know, Cuba is certainly not paradise, and there's a lot of political oppression, but Haiti has all the downsides of Cuba and none of the upsides. And um, that was one of the times in my life where you know, the world, like, it got picked up and set down in a different place for me. And I saw it with different eyes. 
That's so interesting. As a, as a history teacher or a former history teacher, Haiti has always resonated with me. You know, the first, you know, African-American democracy, uh, slave rebellion that over that wins freedom. And then, you know, the rest of uh, North and Latin America essentially cut it off for many years. And it's still the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, that tragic history, like you said, uh, must have a profound effect on a writer or, or just a human being in general. Um, and that's 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 really cool that you've spent time there. And I, I think it must be some sort of incredible education. That's the way I look at it. I mean, it's an ongoing education for me. Um, I, I am a deficient and uh, stunted human being and... Um, I think I, you know, I have to do whatever I can to overcome that. So I want to shift um, focus a little bit and talk about your your new book, um, "Beautiful Country Burning Gay." I mean, you were uh, lucky or uh, unlucky, depending on how you look at it, enough to be able to follow the 2016 presidential campaign, and. It, it seems like you did a lot of traveling. You saw an enormous amount of speechifying. And the way you assessed the American moment of 2016 to me was, again, sort of spot on. Here's what I'm interested in, because we're foreign policy guys. I mean, we spend most of our time talking about war, the absence of war, the prevalence of war. But what struck me about 2016 was that foreign policy didn't seem to be the major item on the agenda. So from your time following these candidates, which is much more extensive than what I saw on TV, what did you assess to be the degree to which any of the candidates really even mentioned foreign policy or articulated some sort of broad strategic vision? Uh, was that even a meaning, meaningful part of the campaign from what you saw? Uh, in, in, in a limited sense, uh, it would come up. I think um, one of the things I was really paying attention to or trying to pay attention to was candidates' um, approach to the ongoing wars and the fact that as of 2015, 2016, we've been involved in Afghanistan and Iraq um, for 14 or 15 years, and the war had spread to Yemen, um, Syria, on and um, and it was fascinating and really horrifying that only two of the candidates were even talking about um, we need were even saying that look what we're doing is not working we need to really have a serious discussion about um, how we are going to you know pursue our interests in the Middle East and those two candidates were Rand Paul and Bernie Sanders. Right. And right. Um, all the other candidates, it was a question of either more of the same or much, much more of the same. That was really the only difference. And, and the, you know, the bullshit belligerence of their tone, like, you know, Ted Cruz and, oh. and you know, chicken hawking about, you know, making the desert glow and, and, and waterboarding in a hell of a lot worse. I mean, um, so it was kind of mind bending to see yeah. all these candidates and mainstream candidates from the political mainstream really not coming to grips at all with this, you know, this overwhelming problem that's cost a lot of American lives and run up trillions of dollars in debt. And by the way, wreaked a hell of a lot of havoc across the Middle East. Um, so. I was shocked, continually shocked that um, Hillary Hillary Clinton. I think she did have a coherent policy, um, and you know, informed by her years as Secretary of State. To me, it wasn't a particularly um, appealing foreign policy. Again, she was one of um, the candidates who seemed not to be talking about anything you know substantially different from what we've been doing. And um, and she has a pretty hawkish history in general and um, also very much, you know, from the globalization, free trade um, side of things. So 
Uh, it was, it, you know, I didn't see a whole lot to, you know, pull for besides, you know, Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul, um, you know, talking honestly about examining a new approach to things. You know, that's really interesting that you point that out because it speaks to the problem with the two-party system in the United States, doesn't it? Because only the libertarian fringe of the Republicans, personified by Rand Paul, and the socialistic or democratic socialistic, not fringe, but wing of the Democratic Party under Bernie Sanders, only those two groups are willing to speak out on foreign policy. And what struck me about the 2016 campaign and really bothered me, like as a veteran and also just as an American and a human being, was the way that both campaigns, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, they sort of militarized themselves before the convention. They, they looked to see how many generals they could each line up to support them. And they paraded generals, whether it be Flynn for, you know, Trump or Allen for Hillary Clinton. And, and these generals are like getting political, retired generals are getting politically involved in just this bellicose rhetoric at the conventions. And I was thinking, is there any difference between the Republicans and the Democrats on foreign policy anymore? And it seems increasingly to be the case that there's not. Yeah, I don't think there's much, certainly between the establishments of those those two parties. Um, and, you know, you can see that all through our politics in foreign policy and on economics. There, um, there is really is not a whole lot of difference between the two parties, the mainstream of those two parties. And, um, and you know, I think that's one reason, you know, huge numbers of Americans don't come out to vote. They don't see sharp distinctions between the parties. And the politics of the last 35, 40 years haven't offered these people a great deal in terms of speaking to their very real economic anxieties. Hey, everyone. I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. But truth be told, I need your help. No, I don't need you to move a couch or borrow a leaf blower. No, I need you to hit pause on your podcasting app right now and share this episode with somebody you know. Somebody who you might think might be receptive to it. It could be a, a friend or relative who's considering joining the military or a veteran you know who might be interested in, in hearing a little more truth in their news about uh, military and veterans. We rely on you all to help us reach as many people as possible. So please hit that pause button right now and share this episode with somebody. Sharing all done? Good? Okay, good deal. I know Uncle Al will cuss a lot listening to the episode, but he'll appreciate it when the cursing stops. Now I want to mention something about Patreon. We are always in the market for more Patreon supporters. So if you get the chance, please come out and support us. You could support us for as little as a dollar a month. And what do you get for your dollar, you ask? Well, you get a one-minute drop on any topic you choose once a month. Just email us your question or comment, and we'll give it the old Henry Danny breakdown on air. Guaranteed to have 60 seconds of our time. We may spend more on it. Um, we prefer to do military and veteran topics, but whatever topic you think might be pertinent. And we may spend a whole bunch more time talking about it, depending on the topic. And for contributors, a bit north of a dollar a month, we have some bonus episodes, some essays of mine, and a few other things as well. We're still in the process of, of building our rewards, so if you have any suggestions for Patreon rewards, please let me know. Now, back to the podcast. I saw in your, uh, your discussion with Bill Moyers, you had talked about our system dropping any pretense of any kind of fundamental fairness as far as... American economics having left ordinary people behind. And I extend that idea to military personnel, military personnel as well, not simply because poor economics hurts everyone, but because the citizenry and their reps in Congress have abdicated observing the military and fighting for change in any way and how the military is used. And I'm wondering from you and your time researching for, for Billy Lynn and for Beautiful Country Burn Again, that what type of fairness should ordinary citizens like yourself search for with soldiers in terms of their use of war? What I, I feel like that there needs to be a, 
a greater connection there, and I, I'm I'm trying to figure out a way to find it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's this thing called the social contract, and um, and I think basically it goes like this: if a citizen um, plays by the rules, obeys the laws, um, works hard to educate himself or herself as best they can, um, goes to work works diligently, pays taxes, raises their kids, educates their kids as best they can, then that citizen will have, you know, will, the other side of the contract is what they get in return is you know, a decent standard of life, hopefully more than decent. I mean, a, a, a standard of living that allows for dignity and um and honor and uh, and opportunities for their kids. Um, I think with the military, you, you double down on that because people who serve in the military, um, they are potentially and often more than potentially putting their lives on the line and um, and making tremendous sacrifices in terms of you know the danger and the risks they undergo and also time away from family. And also in giving up a certain degree of personal autonomy. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. If you're in the army, they own your ass. And if they say go, oh yes, they do. <laughs> yeah. Um. And so, and so the social contract there is is even more compelling. And I think society owes even more to people in the military because of what you know they have. Because their side of the contract demands so much of them and their families. And um, I think first and foremost, first and foremost, the country should go, should go to war as a very last resort. You do not use your military. You do not potentially sacrifice the lives of your soldiers anything less than dire necessity and um, that part of the contract was brutally and grotesquely broken in 2001, 2002 2003 and has continued to be broken and um, I think it can't help but corrupt society at large and make people cynical and, uh, and you know this reflexive, this competitive patriotism that we see permeating the culture now, I think it's a defensive defensive reflex. I mean, people in their souls and their bones, they know something's deeply, deeply wrong. And so hence you get all this garbage about you know, trotting the troops out at every halftime and every pregame ceremony and, and every campaign and, and um so you know, basic fairness that is you know, that's, that's another way of describing the social contract. And yeah, I think basic fairness has been lost with regard to the military and lost with regard to the working class and the middle class of the United States. You, you know, I, I really love the points you're making. And I want to sort of go off script a little bit and riff on the NFL a little bit because the Dallas Cowboys and the NFL were, were, were sort of a character in Billy Land, I felt. I mean, the backdrop of the football game was, was very important, and that was back in 2004. And I'm struck by the degree of militarism at every major sporting event, especially the NFL today, because I'm old enough, and, and certainly you're old enough to remember a time when that wasn't always the case, where we really only paraded soldiers around on Memorial Day and Veterans Day. You know, there was two days out of the year and it felt sufficient. And yet today, whether it's the gargantuan flags or, like you said, parading soldiers in front of the stadium every Sunday, not just on Veterans Day, you know, what does that say about our culture? I mean, what? how do you, how do you process that? And why do you think it is that we've gone in such a hyper-nationalist direction? Um, it's, it's a way out of complexity. It's a way to, um, simplify things in, in a pretty false way. 
Um, I mean, you trot out this binary narrative of us against them, good against evil, um, freedoms against oppression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Christians against Muslims. Um, I think reality is much more complicated than that. And, uh, but reducing things to militaristic terms, nationalistic terms, um, it saves us the trouble of doing some hard thinking and hard soul searching. Um, you know, I mean, patriotism, what is patriotism? It's love of country. And, well, what is love? I mean, and anybody who's of a certain age, who's been married for a while, you, you start to realize, or been in a long-term relationship, you realize love is a lot of giving and not much taking. Love involves pain, sacrifice, um, sub, you know, supplementing or, or, or making your own desires often secondary to another person or to the relationship. Um, as opposed to puppy love, which is all, you know, goodness and light and kisses and, and, um, but it's not real. And I think, um, what we're seeing, what we see mostly these days is puppy love patriotism. It doesn't right. involve any sacrifice. It's, it's this kind of feel good, sentimental, trot the troops out. We support the troops, fly the big flag, wear a flag lapel pin, but where's the sacrifice? Um, I mean, most of us have not served in the military or, and we don't have family members in the military. Um, our taxes have gone down as opposed to up. So, so we aren't paying for these wars as we go. Whereas during World War II, the top tax rate was 90%. There wasn't, wasn't a word about rationing of, you know, war critical resources or gas. And, um, I mean, you know, some politicians, I remember Marco Rubio said, we are engaged in a classic clash of civilizations. You know, East versus West, Christian versus Muslim. Well, if that was the case, if it really is a clash of civilizations, then we ought to be going for full mobilization. But the fact that he wasn't calling for anything like that just shows how empty his rhetoric was. Right. And I think, you know, he's well within the political mainstream in that regard. Absolutely. You just look at the number of congressmen that have served today as compared to even 20 years ago, and the numbers are, are completely down. And then look at how many congressmen have kids that serve in the wars they vote for. I mean, the numbers are minuscule. Yeah. Um, it, it says something about the culture. You know, I, um, I don't mean to pick on these particular individuals, but I'm going to pick on these particular individuals. So actually, I do mean it. You know, when Mitt Romney was running for president in 2012, and he brought out his family, good-looking family, and I think four or five big, strapping, healthy, good-looking sons. I mean, these guys were just, I mean, classic all-American young men. I mean, did they fight in the war? And, I mean, look at Donald Trump's sons, for that matter. Um, you know, the two oldest, Donald Jr. and Eric. Um not only did they not have anything to do with the military, but nobody's ever really commented on it. Right. Um, and nobody commented on Romney and his sons not being in the military. And so there's this vast disconnect, cognitive, cognitive disconnect between what we say, what we profess to believe, and the way we live our lives. And it's it's so interesting because it is historically distinct. I mean, this this what you're describing is more – uh, abnormal than most people would assume. I mean, President Franklin Roosevelt had four sons, all of whom served in World War II, the war that Franklin Roosevelt declared. And mm -hmm. Teddy Roosevelt had four sons in World War One, including one who was shot down and killed. He's the only president to have lost a son in combat. And it strikes me because of how different it is. The Kennedy boys, okay, to take a Democrat example, whether you love or hate the Kennedys, Besides Ted, they all served, mm -hmm. some very heroically, and one died, the one that was supposed to be president. And even LBJ, his daughter, married a Marine captain who served in Vietnam while LBJ was in office. I mean, that is unheard of today, the thought yeah. of a Romney boy or a Trump boy or even Sasha and Malia marrying a military guy. 
mm-hmm. in the way that LBJ's daughter. That's unthinkable today, and that's and it's it's a shame. That okay, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, talking about Sasha and Malia, or say Baron, or yeah, you know, okay, any of the president's kids. All right, you fall in love with who you fall in love with. That's fine. That's cool. Um, but you, you fall in love with the people you're hanging around. Right. And, um, and notice that, you know, the Obama girls, um, uh, 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 oh, Chelsea Clinton, um, you know, they didn't marry, aren't marrying school teachers, firefighters, soldiers. They're marrying hedge fund managers. And so, of course. you know, that's the people they're hanging around and that's fine. Okay, cool. But it just shows the stratification of this society, how it's become more and more distinct and extreme. And so there is there are large gaps between the lived experience of one part of the country and another, and especially between, you know, those with power and those without power or with very little power. So, um, you know, it speaks to a larger question of we don't live together anymore. Um in the sense of everybody being, you know, just kind of living among one another there, the, the stratification that comes with great wealth, um, you know, has all kinds of implications through all corners of society and life. We actually did forget one, um, uh, Bo Biden, Joe Biden's son that died, uh, it died in Iraq. Yeah. Right? So. yeah. Well, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, I mean, love him or hate him, he does have a certain common touch that he is does. undeniable. He does. Um, smiling yeah. Joe is, you know, whether it's riding the Amtrak or talking about Scranton, I mean, he's he's pretty old school. Well, yeah, um, yeah. You know, all right, riding Amtrak. I think that's great. I mean, you are rubbing shoulders every right. day with, you know, your fellow citizens. And, you know, and I think that cannot, the importance of that cannot be overestimated. I mean, you hear what's on people's minds. You see it in their faces. You're taking part in the lived experience of the country as opposed to being in this bubble of privilege and protection that cuts you off from the life of the country. Absolutely. Ben, do you have, uh, are there any classic war texts, any classic war writers that you enjoy, Marcus Aurelius or anything like that? Um, let's see, Marcus Aurelius, man, you're, um, <laughs> no, I'm, dig- I'm digging way far back there, aren't I? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, that he is a huge gap in my education in an education that has many gaps. Um, <laughs> I know that my friend, has looked to Marcus Aurelius quite a bit, and uh, Elias a fine writer. Um, you know, for one of the chapters in the book, the chapter about Memorial Day, um, I found myself delving into Ambrose Bierce. Oh, yes. Who I really didn't know much about. I knew he had been in the Civil War and wounded and then became a famous, famously cantankerous American writer. Um, but he was really the first writer of talent in America to try to depict modern war, war as mass produced slaughter. And it was something new under the sun, um, you know, here on earth. I mean, you know, war had always been bloody, obviously fatal, you know, lethal. Um, but this was more as, um, as another extension of, of, you know, the industrial age. And, um, and he tried very hard to put it into authentic language and authentic narratives that would, that would, that would portray that experience for what it really was. And, and so I think all these all American war writers after beers, in a way they are, they are um, following in his footsteps. And, you, know, you look at Hemingway and Dos Passos, First World War, Hemingway, um, uh, Mailer, Heller, yes, yes, Award, um, Kurt Vonnegut, I mean, and then you know the great writers of the Vietnam War era, and now down to today, and it's um, uh, 
these writers are trying for something very hard. They're trying for the language that will do their experience justice. And uh, it's my distinct sense that these these are complex um, experiences that only the most honest effort can come close to in getting down on paper. Well, you've done an incredible job with your additions to the literature, I have to say. And it's all the more remarkable because as I read Billy Lynn, even as I read Burn Again, Beautiful Country, I feel like I'm reading a veteran. I mean, and, and I can't pay you a higher compliment than that in the sense that you've sort of captured our experience. And, and I'm grateful for that because most people ignore us, you know, except for thank you for your service or a yellow ribbon on their car. I mean, so it's really great. And so my last question really is about that, but it's about justice, which is like a recurring theme, I think, through all of your work. And so I want to know what you're working on now, if you're working on something, and what connection that justice theme has to whatever it is you're pouring yourself into now. Uh, I went on a short story streak this summer after I turned Beautiful Country Burn Again in, and um, it felt really good to get back to fiction. The stories were coming out differently from anything I've ever written. I mean, just different tone, and just felt like a different thrust to them in a way that that made me happy. Um Maybe going off and writing nonfiction and, and taking a deep dive into the current life of the country, um, I think it did something to my head that may be good for my writing. Um, I don't know. It just feels like there's, there's um, some, some, some substantial currents in these stories that very much speak to justice. I mean, if you go at it too directly – it becomes a polemic and, um, and you know, that's not art. That's not fiction. That's something else. Um, something that's usually lesser than, um, genuine art. So, you know, justice, I mean, what is justice? It's, um, it's basic fairness. And where does fairness come from? Um, I think it comes from, a, a genuine appreciation for another person's reality, for the reality of all these people around you and for the collective reality of all your fellow citizens. And, um, and I think that's the great promise of America is equality, the principle of equality. It's right there in the founding words um, of the Declaration of Independence, all men created equal. And the work of the country ever since then has been to make that equality principle the lived reality of the country. Or that's been the goal of many people in this country. For other people and other interests in this country it is manifestly not the goal. And, um, and so I think the story of the United States is the story of this ongoing battle between those who want to stay true to the equality principle and those who's, who view their interests, their identity as threatened by, by equal citizenship stature among all their fellow citizens. And, um, and you know, it comes down to justice. I mean, is there going to be justice for all? Are we going to have equality of citizenship or are we going to have Tiers of citizenship, first class citizens, second, third, fourth, fifth. And um, it seems to me in very different ways and in their own ways, these stories are taking me deeper into that. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to be able to see into somebody else and to when you when you have no specific experience that that mirrors that thing but you you have a level of bravery i i i <laughs> i haven't had in my writing so kudos to that it's 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 i i think i i mentioned a little bit last time that my uh in 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 
in my growing up that I, I, I adopted this line of thinking about military service and that if you didn't serve, you, you can't speak about it. You know, you're, you're not speaking authentically to it. And what I realized is that, first of all, the military belongs to all of us, all American citizens. When people decide that their military does something dumb and I'm not part of that, you, you don't get that option. It's, it's the whole pie. It's the whole encompassment of it. Um, but I, it was really hard for me to get past that, that stump of I'm willing to question. I'm willing to look someone as, as pained and lived as me and say, I want to question your experience, not you as a person, but the experience. So, but yeah, absolutely. Thank you. It's, it's, it's been, a uh, awesome talking to you and awesome uh, talking about your book. Uh, I really appreciate it guys. Um, it's been a complete pleasure and, um, and I applaud you guys for what you're doing with Fortress on the Hill. Hey guys, thanks thanks again for coming out and listening to us today. I want to give a special thank you to Clifton Hicks, who made our amazing new intro and outro music. I cannot express enough in words how much Danny and I loved the new song when we heard it. And if you agree, please drop him a line at his website or visit his Patreon page. The links for both those places will be in the show notes. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. Clifton was also recently a guest on Eyes Left and told his own incredible story as an Iraq War veteran and a conscientious objector. Please go listen to his episode. We'll see you next time. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also on Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at FortressOnAHill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a contributor at Patreon.com. If you're not into doing a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple of bucks on PayPal. The link for that is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget that. We'll see you next time.